Good morning, uh, junior highs. I was told that this is the time I can dismiss you. You can head upstairs to the library. Um, your teacher's waiting for you there. And for everyone else, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 16. Acts chapter 16. As you're turning there, in case you weren't with us last week, or maybe you were with us last week, but uh, you've forgotten something, I want to just bring you up to speed in terms of what we covered, because obviously the story from the first half of chapter 16 and the second half this is all connected. Um, and so last week we saw the Apostle Paul um, ministering, being faithful as he went. And he was, he was looking for opportunities. So at one point he tried to go into Asia. And if you remember, the Holy Spirit closed the door. He said, no, don't go into Asia. And then another time he tried to go into Bithynia. And Jesus forbade him from going to Bithynia. And then finally, God gave him a vision in the night of a man in Macedonia calling him to come to minister in Macedonia. And so he went. He traveled to Macedonia and he began ministering there. Uh, he met a woman named Lydia in a small Bible study and he led her to the Lord, her and her family, and they were baptized. And so today we're picking up in that story. What I want you to see, in case you're wondering how it's connected, what I really want you to see is that the Apostle Paul is exactly where he's supposed to be. Okay, that's an important detail. He's exactly where he's supposed to be. God led him here so precisely. He shut doors, he opened doors so that Paul would be here. So he's in the right spot and he's doing the right thing. So he's, he's sharing the gospel. He's being perfectly obedient to the assignment he's been given. So he's in the right place and he's doing the right thing. And therefore, this story that we're about to see is a story of a successful ministry. Okay? Now, so that's important, but here's the kicker. As we read this story, we're going to realize that perhaps our North American 21st century idea of successful ministry and what that looks like, perhaps that needs to be tweaked. Because there are a lot of details in this story that would leave you wondering if this is really successful. Is this really where Paul's supposed to be? Is this really what he's supposed to be doing? The answer, of course, is, is yes. Therefore, as we read this story, we want to be shaped by the word of God to understand what, what success really looks like as we minister for the Lord. Okay, so that's, that's where we're headed. We're going to read a large section of the text today, so I hope you have your Bible open. We're going to read chapter 16. We're going from verse 16 all the way to the end of the chapter. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. 
and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened and when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped but Paul cried with a loud voice do not harm yourself we're all here the jailer called for lights and he rushed in And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and he set, before, he set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he, had re- that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said, Paul is in the right place. He's doing the right thing. And what we have here is Luke's account of the successful ministry that was done in the city of Philippi. And my question for you is, if you had lived through this ordeal, if this had been you instead of Paul, and you're looking back on, on what all transpired here in chapter 16, would you count this as success in your estimation? Now, Two families have been saved and baptized, right? The family of Lydia and the family of the jailer. But at what cost? The the whole city turned against Paul. He was beaten to a pulp again, thrown into the inner cell in the prison, had to stay there overnight, and then he was essentially excommunicated from the city. They said, just get out of here. Was that success? The New Testament answers are resounding, yes, it is that is success that's what success looks like and now listen we follow a crucified king it's important for us to wrap our hearts and minds around that and sometimes i wonder if you know we we can't be tempted to engage with the, the world's thinking we follow a crucified king and he has shifted our whole paradigm his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world he taught us that again and again Under his rule, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Under his rule, the humble will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be laid low. In his kingdom, down is the way up. He taught us, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is foundational to what it means to be a Christian. As you come into the faith, Right? What is the initiatory rite? Your baptism. We, we put you under the water and we say you are not united with Jesus in his death and raised again to walk with him in newness of life. Down, 
then up, united with him in suffering and death, raised with him in newness of life. But if we're honest, we want to skip the death and the suffering part, right? Don't we? But there is no resurrection without the cross. God's kingdom is like the upside-down kingdom. The moments when it looks like we're losing are often the moments when the greatest victories are actually being won. Exhibit A, the cross, right? And the moments when we're tempted to think that we're winning, the moments when we're comfortable and when we have power are often the moments when we're actually losing. Exhibit A, the, the crusades, the holy wars, the North America in the 21st century, an onlooking world that looks at Hollywood and thinks that that is a representation of, of Christianity and what it does to people. Those moments of comfort and prestige, those actually were the moments that we were losing. Down is the way up. Which is why in our passage this morning, what we're going to do is we want to be redefining success in the upside down kingdom. And I think this story is going to be very helpful at that end. I want to pull out four lessons for us. Okay, We're going to begin with this one. When it comes to real success in God's eyes, sometimes fame and acclaim are obstacles. So I want to show you where this is. First of all, we find this possessed girl in the city of Philippi, and she's following them around, and she's, because of this demon in her, she has a legitimate ability to see aspects of the future. Now, pause there. This isn't the point of the text, but I do want to just say this loud and clear. Christians, we need to recognize that there is a power of darkness that's at work in the world. To be a Christian is to recognize that that is the truth, that there is the devil, and that there are demons, and there are dark powers at work in this world, which means we don't play with dark things. So let's just say that loud and clear. As a Christian, you don't play with that stuff. You don't sit down at the Ouija board. You don't go to see the fortune teller. When the psychic comes to Casino Rama, you don't buy the tickets to go and sit in on that because we actually recognize that, that there is real darkness in this world. Now, of course, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. But as a child of the light, I don't play with the darkness. Okay, so that's, that's an aside, but we don't play with that. Now, back to the point we, we want to see here. This girl is possessed by a demon, and she's following Paul and Silas around for days. And she is shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Which, by the way, is absolutely true. Right? She's, she's saying the truth. Look at what she, They are servants of the Most High God. They are proclaiming the way of salvation. In fact, one might argue that this girl was actually kind of helping them. Right? She's a local celebrity. Her, her owners are making a fortune off this girl. People know who she is. It, she, at the very least, she's drawing a crowd, right? As she's shouting in the streets, this is who these guys are. This is what they're doing. She's shouting true things. But I want you to consider something for a moment. Why would this, the demon in this girl, why would he seemingly endorse the gospel? Why would he be seemingly aligning himself with this and drawing attention to this? I think, and this is important, I think it's because the devil understands that he can do far more damage to the spread of the gospel by obscuring it from the inside than by opposing it from the outside. Let me say that again. He can do far more damage to the spread of the gospel by obscuring it from the inside than by opposing it from the outside. So if he can dilute the church 
with worldly wicked people who are, who are just playing a game. It's, it, nothing real has actually happened. Who are saying the words, but there's no change here. If he can dilute the church with people like that, then he doesn't need to resist the preaching because people are going to tune us out before we even open our mouths because there's no difference in us. I think that's why we read in verse 18, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Paul is greatly annoyed with this help that he's receiving. He is not interested in the alignment, in the publicity, in in this help that he's receiving from darkness. No, enough, out of here. He wants nothing to do with that alliance because the success that that would cultivate is no success at all. It's fool's gold. We're not looking for notoriety or fame. We're here to change the world. Can I tell you something? As I pray through this passage, I feel strongly convicted that we as the North American church desperately need to learn this lesson. We are developing a terrible habit of rushing to embrace anyone with celebrity, anyone with power who will give a tip of the cap to the church. And and as soon as they do that, as soon as they'll give the high five or extend the hand, we we are so quick to claim them as our own and to lift them up and say, they speak for us. So I'm going to say something, and it's going to sound political, but I don't care about your politics. I don't care who you would vote for if you happen to live in a certain place, but I do care deeply who we align Jesus with. And I would say, I would estimate that millions and millions of people now have a distorted view of the gospel because of what we as North American Christians did with Donald Trump over the last 10 years. I don't care who people voted for. But I do care that so many of us as Christians saw this powerful man who's about to grab hold of the power and we watched as he tipped his cap to the church and we said, he's one of us. Even though clearly he was not a follower of Christ. He is not submitted to Christ. And that, that damaged people. That left a lot of people looking at Christianity, looking at Jesus and saying, there's no power in this. And they'd be right if he were a follower of Christ. And I, I would say here in, in Canada, we need to be very careful. Right now, you know, we've got a very popular philosophical man, Jordan Peterson, who seems like a very nice man, and I pray that he would be saved. I really hope that. But he has not bowed the knee to Jesus. And I see a lot of young Christians saying, he speaks for us, and we just need to be clear, no, he doesn't. He doesn't speak for Christ. We just have to resist this urge to exalt and elevate and claim as our own anyone who, with this credibility and this fame, who, who kind of tries to align themselves with the church. The Apostle Paul wanted nothing to do with that. G. Campbell Morgan is exactly right here. He says, the devil's methods of opposition are those of allegiance and antagonism. And the only serious one is the first. The devil's methods of opposing the church, allegiance and antagonism. The real dangerous one is that allegiance. Let us beware of it. Do not let us imagine that we can take into our fellowship and enlist under one banner men who simply affirm truth about Jesus unless in their own lives there is an absolute loyalty to the Lord Christ. And that is a lesson that is an uncomfortable lesson, but boy, do we need to learn it in the North American church. Paul understood this. And even though this girl is saying all the right things and she's drawing a crowd and she's a local celebrity, Paul doesn't want, he says, that is not helping the spread of the gospel. That is hurting the spread of the gospel. 
Because sometimes fame and acclaim are obstacles in this upside-down kingdom. That's the first lesson we learn here. Second, we learn in this story that sometimes pain and persecution are open doors. So Paul not only lost a worldly ally when he cast out this demon, but he gained some enemies. This slave girl had long been making her owner's money with her fortune-telling. And when the demon left, so too did her earning power. So the gospel's coming into Philippi, and as the gospel's making new ground, it's affecting every sphere of life, including the economy. Again, let's pause here. This isn't the point. But when the gospel breaks new ground, it should affect every sphere of life, including the economy. And I pray for the day when the economy of Aurelia is affected by the spread of the gospel. I I pray for the day when the fentanyl dealers move on to another town because their, their old clients, their former clients are too busy praising and worshiping God to come back to them. And I pray for the day when the casino is, is losing money and the cannabis store is losing money and the liquor store is, is losing money because people aren't turning there for their comfort anymore. I pray for the day when the industries that profit off of ruining people's lives, when, when they are just so shaken in their foundations because the gospel is changing people's lives in Aurelia. And if and when that prayer is answered and that happens in this city, people are going to be angry, which is what happens here. These men are, are furious. They don't care that she's been set free from the demon. They don't care about the freedom she's received. They care about the bottom line. And this is bad for business. And so jumping back in now, they go to the magistrates of the city now that they've lost their, their business and they try to whip them up, but they don't even mention the finances because they know that's not what's going to draw a crowd. Instead, they concoct a story about how Paul and Silas are undermining the very values of Rome, which, by the way, is in a sense kind of true, right? Because Paul and Silas are saying that King Jesus is king over everyone, even Lord over Caesar. So in a sense, they're right. But of course, they're misrepresenting them, which is what happens in persecution. Expect to be misrepresented. But if we want to understand why this accusation was so effective, it'd be helpful to know a little bit of the history of Philippi. So if I could just give you one little paragraph of history. Two men named Brutus and Cassius led in the assassination of Julius Caesar, the most famous Caesar. They led in his assassination. And that assassination led to a battle in the city of Philippi, 42 B.C., So at 42 BC, Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the armies of Brutus and Cassius, these assassins. And that happened in Philippi. So these are the heroes of Rome, and this is the place where it all went down. So if you're in Philippi, this is a patriotic place, right? This this is the spot. If people are, are proud to be Roman, here, you come here to remember how proud you are to be a Roman. And so these guys, they they see Paul and Silas and they say, you know what, I know how to turn this city against them. Let's tell everybody that they're opposed to Rome. And so we see in verses 22 to 24, the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. So again, just we try to do this as we're reading these narrative stories He's inviting us to try and picture this in our minds, right? So try and see Paul and Silas there in this dark, damp prison. They're in the innermost cell. They've just, they've just been beaten. Later on, the jailer is going to clean their wounds, which means they've got open wounds. That's how bad this beating with rods is. They've got open wounds. Remember the Apostle Paul in Lystra just 
a short while ago, was stoned and left for dead. So Paul is already a disfigured man, and here he's, he's even more disfigured from this latest beating, and they're there in the prison. They put his, their feet in stocks so they're uncomfortable. And while they're there in that place, there's a city outside that prison who hates them, a mob that was ready to kill them. All they did was set a little girl free from a demon. I mean, you talk about injustice. They set a little girl free and the city responds by beating them to a pulp and putting them in jail. How would you respond, Christian, if that was you? If all your comforts are stripped away and you're hated by the world and you're falsely accused and misrepresented and mistreated and then imprisoned? Think of it on a, on a deeper theological level as a, as a follower of Jesus. How would you respond knowing that it was God that called you to this assignment. How would you respond knowing that you had only done exactly what Jesus commanded you to do? How would you respond remembering that he slammed shut every door which would have led you away from this beating that you just received? In verse 25, we read, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Yeah, I bet they were. Prisoners are listening in. It was probably a curious thing at midnight as these beaten, unrecognizable men are sitting in the dark, cold prison singing to their king. G. Campbell Morgan reminds us, any man can sing when the prison doors are open and he's set free. The Christian soul sings in prison. So I would just ask you, Christian, I ask myself, can we sing in prison? Can you sing in pain? Can you sing when you feel yourself hated by the world and the people that you're trying to help are returning your kindness with blows? Paul and Silas could, and I'm convinced that it was because of two truths that shaped these men and that should shape every follower of Jesus. First of all, they're shaped by the truth of the resurrection. These men believed in the resurrection. Jesus rose from the grave. And so too will we. Do what you want to this body, because I'm getting a new one, right? It's going to come up out of that ground, and it's going to be perfected. And so smack it with a stick and throw a rock at it. I don't care. This belongs to Jesus, and he's going to raise it again. I know how the story ends. <laughs> they were shaped by this. It changes everything. When, we, when this sinks into our hearts, it changes everything. But there's a second truth that shaped them. And it's the truth that it is an honor and a privilege to share with Christ in his suffering. It is a privilege to suffer with and for Christ, the one who suffered for us, the man of sorrows, stricken, afflicted, the one who died so that we could live. What a privilege and an honor it is to lay ourselves on the table and to endure suffering, persecution, so that we can share this hope that we have with the world. Paul and Silas saw that as a tremendous privilege. In Romans 8, Paul explains that we're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, listen, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's an old famous hymn that I hope is still in my memory. I'm gonna try this. If you could help me if you know this. But it captures this truth so beautifully. It says, Nearer, my God, to thee, 
nearer to thee, even though it be a cross that raiseth me. Still, O my song shall be nearer, my God, to thee, nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee. It's a powerful song. That line, even though it be a cross that raiseth me, even though, it's, even though it's actually persecution, it's suffering, it's hardship that's lifting me up, unbeknownst to the world, it's lifting me up closer to you. Even so, my song will be nearer to thee. The bars and the chains of that cell did not separate Paul and Silas from the presence of Jesus. On the contrary, as they shared in Christ's suffering, they sensed his nearness all the more. So too will we. That's what it is to follow the crucified king in this upside-down kingdom that we live in. And so as they worshipped in that prison cell, God sent an earthquake, and the prison door swung open, and the chains fell off, and it brought about an encounter between Paul and Silas and this jailer. Because in this upside-down kingdom, where the cross was the means of victory, we shouldn't be surprised that sometimes pain and persecution are open doors. This brings us to the third lesson, which is that sometimes... You are called to suffer so that others can thrive. The doors fling open, and when the guard realizes what has happened, he pulls out his sword, and he's about to kill himself. We're going to come back to that detail later. But I want you to look at verse 28. Paul cries out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We're all here. Question. Why are you all here? Why would they still be there? I mean, because at, at first you look and they're singing and they're praying in prison. And you'd assume that, what are they praying about? Well, they're praying, God, get me out of this mess. That's what I'd be praying about. Get me out of this prison. I don't want to be here. But it turns out that's not what they were praying about because when the prison door swung open, they didn't move. As it turns out, this freedom, my, my freedom, my liberty, this is so low on the Apostle Paul's priority list. Earthly freedom. It doesn't even register for him. The Apostle Paul is about spiritual freedom. He's about setting people free with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he happily sits there in his prison, even though the chains are off and the door is open, so that he can liberate his jailer. Because that's what matters. That's exactly what happened. Through his willingness to forego his own personal freedom, Paul positioned himself to lead that jailer and his entire family to Christ. And we're going to come back to that story in the fourth point, okay? But let's, so let's just see that first little bit, press pause there. And now I want to shift to the end of our passage. Because at the end of this story, the magistrates send one of the uh, police officers and they say, okay, go to the jail and tell them, tell them, okay, you're free. At this point, you know, they've, they've learned their lesson. We roughed them up. Let them go. And so the jailer comes. And in verse 37, Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison Do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Now, at this point, it's almost looking like Paul and Silas want to be in prison. It's like the door swings open, and they're like, well, we're in no rush. And then the the police officer says, come come on, come on, come out of here. And they're like, I think I'll stay. And you think, what is, why are they so eager to stay in that prison? And I would argue that it's actually a love for others that has motivated them to stay in both instances. 
When the prison door swung open, as we saw, they stayed so as to evangelize the jailer. But here, when the police officer tries to throw them out, they're staying so as to better love and serve the church that was going to remain in Philippi. Let me help you get there. So when they were beaten and imprisoned, that was illegal. It was illegal. Paul's a Roman citizen, and as a Roman citizen, you're not allowed to just beat me up without a hearing. That's that's against the law. And so Paul sensed that. The magistrates had broken the, the law, and he wanted to deal with that. And so we read, one commentator says, For Paul and Silas to have departed in this way, however, could have set a dangerous precedent for the future treatment of missionaries. And it also could have let the Christians in Philippi exposed to arbitrary treatment from the magistrates. Meaning Paul knows, if I let them do this to me, they're going to do this to them. If if I let them off the hook and they can just kind of quietly shush me out, then they're going to do this to the church. And so Paul realizes, I have an opportunity here to love this young fledgling church. And so he says, no, tell the magistrates they can come and talk to me. And that's what happened. The magistrates came and in verse 39, says they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. The real significance of this passage is what was happening likely behind the scenes. Because I suspect that this sent a ripple through the power brokers in Philippi. There were likely form wordings that, warnings that went out to say, don't mistreat the people with Paul and Silas, okay? Because now they've got something over our heads. And if Paul and Silas report us, we're all going to lose our position. We might be thrown in prison ourselves. And so suddenly there's a little bit of, of protection for this young church that's getting off the ground. I think that's exactly what Paul is doing. Now in hindsight, the beating that Paul and Silas endured and the night that they spent behind bars was a small price to pay for the salvation of the jailer and his family and for the political protection of this young fledgling church. You might not have seen it at the time, but in hindsight, I I bet you Paul and Silas would happily pay that price again. Because in this upside-down kingdom, where winning often looks like losing, sometimes you're called to suffer so that others can thrive. That's what we see in this story. But now I want to turn to one final lesson, our fourth and final lesson, as we seek to redefine success. We learn in this story that sometimes your greatest loss leads to your greatest gain. So up until this point, we've been viewing this story through the Apostle Paul's perspective. But if we could just turn away, I want to try now to view this story through this Philippian jailer's perspective. See this through his eyes. Now he is, historically speaking, it's most likely that he was a slave of the city. And as a slave of the city, he would have suffered the death penalty for any prisoner that escaped. Not only would he suffer the death penalty, but they likely would have given him the most horrific death penalty that they could, which is crucifixion. And that's why we read in verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So again, we're looking at it from his perspective. He wakes up and he looks and he sees the door is open. And in this moment, the jailer thinks that this is, this is it. This is the end for me. Whatever hope that I had of, of making a better life for myself, whatever hope that I had of, of working hard enough that my kids could have a better future than I had, it's all, it's all gone. This earthquake just opened the door, the prisoners escaped, and the only thing that's left for me now is public humiliation and a horrific death, and he told, pulls out his sword. He's thinking, at least I can do the honorable thing and spare my family the humility. That, this man is in the deepest, darkest moment of his life. 
This is it. And yet, beautifully and ironically, it was only when this man hit rock bottom that he was enabled to hear the message clearly that Paul and Silas had been preaching all along. The message that had just been bouncing off of a hard head and a hard heart. Suddenly, the door is open and he hears it. It's only when this man is seeing that he deserves a cross and that that's what's in his future. It's only then that he is helped to see the glorious news of the crucified king who hung there in his place. And in this deepest, darkest moment of his life, he asks the most important question that a person can ever ask. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Maybe there's someone sitting here this morning who needs to be asking that most important question. What must I do? You know what I love about this story? It's just so saturated with grace. It's, it's such a beautiful, again, remember, this is the same jailer. This is the same man who just moments ago had, had carelessly brought Paul and Silas into the prison. Their, their bodies open wounds and sores and he brings them into the deepest, darkest thing and he blocks up their feet in stocks. This is the same guy. And as Paul and Silas are suffering and languishing in that prison, what is this guy doing? When we find him in the text, he's, he's sleeping like a baby until this earthquake wakes him up. No, no care, no concern for these prisoners. No, no sympathy for them in their deepest, darkest moment. But now the tables are turned and suddenly he's in his deepest, darkest moment and Paul and Silas, the door swing open and they have the chance to get justice. Right? They've, got, they've got a chance to stick it to the man, stick it to the government, stick it to the people who put us in this place and what do they do instead? They look at this man with tenderness and mercy and they say, put away your sword. Put away your sword. We're still here. We're still here, brother. Take a breath. Verse 31 reads, they said, believe, believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. They're not hanging over his head what he's done. You owe us. You want, you want to hear? You want to hear what you need to be saved? Make this right. None of that. They, they tell this man, you know how you're going to be saved? It's the same way that we were saved. It's the same way that anyone ever has been saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Believe. Believe that the Father has sent his Son. Our Heavenly Father, our Holy God, who is just and righteous, the creator and sustainer of all things, who sees people like, people like Paul, was, remember, Paul was a terrorist, who see people like me, who dragged people. Paul did this, remember? When we first met Paul, we called him Saul. He was dragging people and throwing them in prison. He's just like this jailer. You got to wonder if Paul's looking at this man and just seeing himself in him. God saw people like you, people like me, sinners who are separated from God, sinful people who do sinful things, who have sinful hearts. He saw us, and you know what he did? He so loved the world that he sent his own son to save people like you and me. Believe in the Lord Jesus, who died on that cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. Believe in the Lord Jesus who bore in his flesh all of our guilt and all of our shame. The guilt and shame of when I was throwing people in prison. The guilt and shame of how you've been throwing in prison. The guilt and shame of the things that are happening in our hearts every day and in our minds every day. The things that we know are wrong. God sees every bit of it. But if we put our trust in Jesus, he's nailed it to the cross and it's gone. Believe that. You would be saved. Believe that he took it to the cross and he paid for it and he said it is finished and it was finished. It was completed. 
justice satisfied, righteousness upheld, forgiveness for us right there. And I know it's true because believe that three days later he rose from the grave. We're testifying to this. I can introduce you to witnesses. I'm sure saying to this jailer, I, I know the people who've seen him. He appeared to hundreds. Then he has ascended to the Father where he's seated at the right hand, right now, reigning over this world. Believe that. Believe that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He sent his spirit to change us from the inside out. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. You and your household. This will change everything. And it will change everything. And it did change everything. We go on to read, and he took them that same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. How beautiful is that picture? These same wounds that he callously rejected and ignored just hours ago, he takes them and he's, he's washing their wounds. These brothers in Christ. He's changed. He's not just, he's not just believed. It is, it's changed his life. And he was baptized at once. After he washes their wounds and they wash him. He and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. As his family, as this man and his family went under the water, they declared that they're united with the crucified king in his death and in his suffering. And they came up and they said, and so too we are united with him in this resurrection life. On the brink of being crucified, this man and his family swore their allegiance to the king who was crucified in their place. That night was supposed to end in a suicide and it ended instead in a resurrection. That's what Jesus does. The gospel is good news. It's good news. We have the good news. We've got to tell the world this good news. The apostle Paul could have rushed right by. How many of us are so quick to rush to our comfort? Just rush out of what hurts. Rush out of what's difficult. And, and actually the Lord Jesus led the way, slammed doors shut, and opened doors, sent a vision so that Paul would be in this place where he'd be thrown into that prison because that's exactly where Jesus wanted him. Because Jesus had a plan for that jailer. And he's got a plan for people in your life too. And so we can't be so quick to rush out of everything that's hard and everything that hurts and assume that what God wants for me is for me to be comfortable and for me to be wealthy and for me to have power and prestige and to be loved by the world. That's just not the plan. That's not how it works in this upside down kingdom. The crucified king comes and he meets people in their deepest, darkest place. And if he's meeting people in their deepest, darkest place, then he's, I would assume he's gonna position his ambassadors, that's us, to be right there with people in their deepest, darkest place. That's where people are asking the most important question. What must I do? What must I do to be saved? How does this story end well for me? Knowing what I've done, knowing what's in my future, there's no hope for me. There was no hope for this jailer apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who else in Philippi could tell him? God sent Paul. Sent him right into the deepest, darkest, dampest area of that dungeon so that he could look this man in the eyes and say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Maybe you're here today and you, you realize your eyes are beginning to open to something. See, this is a different kingdom. 
The kingdom of Jesus is different than the kingdom of the world. In all these other kingdoms, you're, you're climbing your way up to the top. You gotta earn your way up. You, gotta, you need the power, you need the prestige. You know, it's exactly the opposite in the kingdom of heaven. Do you know how you enter in? You bow your knees. This is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. You finally have to be brought to an end of yourself. And it's in that place when you finally fall to your knees that you see the way. Do you see the way today? It's a miracle if you do. You can't just muster this up. But if, if God is opening your eyes to see the way, here it is. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You cannot earn this. You can't push your way in. You can't buy your way in. Believe in Jesus. And you will be saved. You and your household. Let's pray together. Oh, great God, I pray that in the stillness of this room that you would speak. God, I'm so thankful that you are the one who saves. You are the God who saves. And Lord, I pray that you would do that even in this moment, Lord, in, this, in the silence of this room. I pray, God, that if there is someone who is right now on the outside, on the outside of your kingdom, outside of your hope, outside of that resurrection life, I pray, God, that you would bring them to their knees and that they would look in faith and see the crucified king who has paid the price so that they could come in. I pray that you would miraculously give them faith to believe. Lord, I think of that prayer. You find it in the New Testament. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, maybe there's someone here today. Lord, I pray that you would enable them to pray that prayer. I believe. Help my unbelief. I want to see. I want to know. I want to hear that voice calling me home. God, would today be the day, I pray, in the powerful name of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, men and women in this room, I want to remind you, God says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, would you in, help us in faith to lay down at your feet our sin, all of the ways that we have fallen short of what you deserve, all of the times that we have done wrong and thought wrong and said wrong. Lord, I pray that we would lay it down and believe that Jesus has taken it in our place. Lord, would you open our eyes to receive this greatest gift? And Lord, I pray for those in this room who have received the gift, and yet, Lord, perhaps we've just forgotten how incredible this gift is. Maybe our hearts have grown cold, Lord, maybe we, we see in ourselves that we would rush right past the jailer to get to the comfortable place. Lord, would you bring conviction in us? Lord, would you make us more like your son? And, and Jesus never ran past people in need. This is not who he was. That's not who we are meant to be. So God, would you change us, make us holy, make us righteous, make us like your son? And I pray that as we go out of this place, Lord, and we enter into our workplaces, Lord, maybe, Lord, the, the dark places in our lives that we wish that we weren't, Lord, I pray that we'd have eyes to see those people who are all around us, made in the image of God, just waiting to hear the good news of the gospel. Lord, so help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?